Embark on a journey of faith, fellowship and discovery with Vision Tours as you experience Australia's rich Christian heritage firsthand. Visit Christian heritage sites and museums in Sydney and across the Blue Mountains on this 10-day tour. Understand the people and events that shaped the fledgling colony with Outback historian Dr Paul Rowe. Join like-minded people this November with Vision Tours. See tour dates, highlights and inclusions at vision.org.au slash tours. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media. Thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation to Visionathon today at vision.org.au. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist and Bible teacher. Bringing people far from God near to God. We believe in one truth that will be delivered in love and compassion. Connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. Today. Today. Today with Jeff Vines. Hello and welcome. Thanks for joining me on Today with Jeff Vines. We start a new message today. Pastor Jeff has titled it Defining Your Treasure. We'll be looking at what else we can learn from the book of Nehemiah. Pastor Jeff is reminding us that the things we're most passionate about are the things that usually get most of our time and effort. Where do your treasures lie? How about we get into this message now with Pastor Jeff Vines. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Nehemiah 4. You might have to look that up in the front to find out where that is. Nehemiah 4. I'm going to ask you to dive into this message like you've never jumped into anything before. I'm going to ask you to, to do what Christians are supposed to be really good at, and then I'm going to ask you to really humble yourself. And I'm going to ask you not to get defensive at all. I'm going to ask you to sit there and say, God, what do you want to say to me this morning? I'm going to ask you to ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to some things. And so I'm going to ask you to dive in, because what we're going to learn together through Nehemiah can really impact everything you do or the way you think from this moment on. And I think it's a Holy Spirit-led moment. If you let it go by, then you're just going to go the way everybody else goes, and it, it doesn't end well. Never. But if you go the way of God, it always ends well. Amen. Now, when I was in high school, my freshman year, they hired a basketball coach. His name was Skeeter Swift. Now, some of you guys who go way back, he played in the old ABA. Do you remember the old ABA? The NBA used to be the NBA and the ABA. Well, he played for the Washington Nationals. So they were a basketball team a long time ago, long before they were a baseball team. This was my first coach in high school. He lasted one year. He was a unique individual. He actually, you could say he was a crazy individual. He would actually make us play a game called strip free throw. Now that's a lot of pressure on a 13 year old. 
I'm not kidding. He says, I want to create the same kind of pressure you would have in a game. And so what he would do is lock all the gym doors and put covers over the windows so no one could look in or get in. And you shoot a free throw. And every time you miss, you remove an article of clothing. Now, when you get down to the final article of clothing and you're 13 years old, man, you talk about pressure. That's pressure. Now, today, he'd be sued, right? The school would be sued. But that's, these, we're talking about back in 1978. That's a long time ago. He lasted one year. They fired him. Thank God they fired him. New coach came in by the name of Lynn Duggar. Lynn Duggar was an All-American at Gardner-Webb University. He was kind of a local boy. They hired him. He came in the first day. It wasn't even basketball season yet, but he gathered all the basketball players together from the previous year. And he gave us the speech about how things were going to change. We were going to do things right. We were going to win championships. We were going to win our conference. We were going to set records for winning home games. And he said all of that, and we're all looking at each other. Coach, chill out a little bit. It's not even basketball. Let us get through you know, football season before you start giving us a speech about what we're going to do in basketball. And then all the players left. He grabbed me by the arm. So I, this is my first experience with Coach Lynn Duggar, a man that I probably respect more than anybody other than my father and Christ himself. So this is a man who has had a lot of influence on my life. And he took me into the corner and he said, hey, Carol Hyder, now Carol Hyder was the teacher of uh, algebra, geometry, trigonometry. And he said, Carol Hyder told me that you were a very special young man. Now, I didn't know what he meant by that for, at first. I'm special. And so I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. And he said, Carol tells me that you want a college scholarship to play basketball. And I said, absolutely, that's what I want. None of my brothers have gone to college. I want to be the first Vines to go to college. So I said, yes, coach, that's what I want more than anything is that's great. Let me give you your new schedule. Now you're 14 years old. You think about this. Your new schedule is you're going to be in the weight room at six o'clock every morning before school. And then I'm going to meet you at the track at noon and we're going to do some sprint and some speed training. Then you'll have lunch. At 3 p.m. after school's out, I'm going to put you on this thing called the jumper, which was the machine from hell. It was supposed to build your jumping, your quickness. And then after school, you're going to be in the gym from four to nine o'clock every night. Now, he knew what I was thinking. And he said, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking about what about girls and parties and fun and summer breaks? Will you have time for them? And my answer to you is yes, you'll have some time, but they're all secondary now to your ultimate goal. Now, I cannot remember, I don't want to lie, I cannot remember exactly the way he put the words, but I've written it down trying as hard as I could to think about exactly how he said it, but it went something like this. He said, Jeff, it's not the absence of these things. It's simply the ability to prioritize your life toward the one thing that matters most to you. He said, whatever matters most to you, and it's, it's what we call living from the top down. It's a triangle. And whatever you put here on the triangle, whatever's most important to you goes here. And as a result, it gets most of your time, energy, resources, passion. And whatever you put down here is still in your life, but it gets the least of these. And then there's a lot in between. And he was simply trying to say to me, Jeb, there is a way to achieve the goal, but it's got to be first and foremost in your life. It's got to be priority. Now, how many of you remember the movie City Slickers? Anybody? Great movie. Billy Crystal is distracted by all that has to be done in his fast-paced city life. So he and a few friends go out into the country on a ranch to try to find the meaning of life. They meet an old weathered cowboy by the name of Jack Palance. And he gives Billy Crystal a speech. Now, I have, I have tried to rewrite that speech and make it a G rating. But he said this. He said, you city folks are all the same. 
You spend 50 weeks a year getting knots in your rope and then think two weeks out here will untie them. The problem is that you're so worked up over stuff that don't amount to a crocka, and this is where I cleaned it up a little bit, tapioca. <laughs> you're worried and upset about so many things. You know what the secret of life is? And then what does he do in the movie? He holds up one finger. Billy Crystal, the forever comedian, says, the secret of life is your finger? He says, no, it's one thing, just one thing. You stick to that and nothing else matters. And Billy Crystal says, well, what's the one thing? And Pallant says, well, that's what you've got to find out. Why do you have to figure that out? Because your life by default will align. Whatever's right here, your life, your priorities, what you think about, your best resources, your best thinking activity, you're going to have all these other things you do in your life, but you've got to figure out what that one thing is. Now, what we've seen in the story of Nehemiah, he figured out what the one thing is, building the city of God and the city of man. And it's of paramount importance that they succeed because God is calling all the Jews from the farthest regions of the earth and he's rebuilding the city and the Messiah is going to come through that city and through the Davidic line. And so they must succeed. But Nehemiah also knows that it's going to be difficult to convince the people because he's going to have to tell them, yeah, you got to eat and you got to marry and have families and do all these things. But you've got to, if we're going to do this, then everybody has to place at the top of that triangle, building the city of God and the city of man. If you don't do this, and if everyone doesn't do that, then we'll go the way of the rest of the world. Now, anytime you try this endeavor, anytime you put something at the top of that triangle, I don't care what it is. And if you're, if you're here this weekend and you're a seeker and you're not even sure about all this city of God stuff, this applies across the board to any area of life. Whatever's here, there's going to be two primary distractions to try to topple you, okay? No matter what it is, whatever your goal is, there's going to be two primary distractions. You find them both in Nehemiah. The first is self-preservation. Notice what happens when they're trying to build a city in Nehemiah 4. But when Samballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that repairs to Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over. Otherwise, they kept repeating, wherever you turn, they're going to attack you. So as you try to build the wall, try to build the city, the city of God and the city of man, your enemy's going to come and they're going to try to destroy you. Now, here's the thing. It's hard to build a city if you're dead right? So if your life is the most important thing, you'll stop building the city and hide in the caves and the hole in the ground for self-preservation. But self-preservation was not the most important thing to them. The most important thing was building the city of God and the city of man. So look how Nehemiah responds in verse eight, verse nine rather, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in their other. <laughs> and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. So they got a tool belt, all the tools building the city, but at the same time, their hand is on their sword. Self-preservation does not stop them from building the city, but they're not stupid either. They've always got their sword with them to defend the city and themselves. Again, you can't work on the city if you're dead. You can't build a city wall if you're buried six feet under it. Now, I believe this is very profound, very profound, because I think for you and me, God understands this is the real world, and you and I have responsibilities, man. We got our family, community, our jobs. 
Even in 1 Timothy 5, 8, we're told, but if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he has denied the faith. In other words, if you think you can say, God called me to do this and abandon your family and your friends, you're wrong. He knows what life is like. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if when we become a follower of Jesus, suddenly we start getting a check in the mail every week from God for rent and groceries? Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great? I'm a Christ follower now, so I'm exempt from taxes. I'm a Christ follower now, so I get a new car every two years from the heavenly car yard. And of course, it's a Honda because the Bible says we're all in one accord. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great? Yes, I know. That's bad. I know. I have, I don't know. I love it when Forrest Gump receives a check in the mail from the Apple company, right? Because their investments have paid off. And he says, Lieutenant Dan's head, we don't got to worry about money no more. So that's good. One less thing. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great? If when you became a Christ follower, food, clothes, money, all of that, you don't have to worry about that again. But this is the real world. And Christ knows we're in the real world. And I think God is pleased when we live our lives, when we work, when we recreate. I think he not only approves of that, but expects it. When you sit down to dinner with your family, I think you glorify God. When you have a game of golf with a friend, I think you glorify God. Some of you glorify God too much, but nevertheless, you glorify God. When you go on vacation with your family and take a pause from work, I think you glorify God. The kingdom of God, and here's what my coach was trying to say. The kingdom of God is not about the absence of fun and love and recreation in life. It's just the priority of your life is building the city of God and the city of man. That's the difference. And the world turns this triangle up on its side, doesn't it? And the very most important thing to the world is self-preservation. But the Christ follower dies to himself and lives for something else. It doesn't mean he stops doing all these things that are fun and that is required to live a life. It just means he's got a new priority, a new passion. The one thing for him is building the city of God and the city of man. John Wesley once asked his mother, you know, the great preacher John and Charles Wesley, his mother, Susanna Wesley, defined sin this way. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God and takes off the relish of spiritual things, that to you is sin. Now, do you realize what she is saying to her son? Let me help you. Silicon Valley is trying to create addictions in your life. It's called the iPhone, the iPad, and all this technology. Now, in and of itself, this technology is not immoral. It's not wrong to have these things. So according to Susanna Wesley's definition, when does an iPhone, an iPad, and all this technology become sinful? When it starts distracting from your ultimate goal. When instead of waking up and the first thing you do is talk to God, is the first thing you do is swipe so that you can find out the latest Snapchat, Facebook information, so you can go to your favorite news place. When you're so addicted to it, your head is down in it all the time. At that point, it becomes your God, the thing that you serve, that you work at, that you obey. When you're at the table and you don't talk to each other as a family because everybody, all the kids are on the cell phones. It's okay to tell them to leave the cell phones behind when they come to the dinner table. That's not child abuse. <laughs> Stay with me just for a moment. I had a guy in New Zealand, name is Mike Taylor. He was one of our elders, a great man. And he said, you know, Pastor Jeff, I, 
I want to make as much money as I can so that I can build the kingdom of God as much as I can. And you know, it's easy to say that. He would say, you know what, I want to eat and live, but primarily I want to build a city of God. Now, to be honest with you, he didn't say city of God. He said, I want to build the kingdom of God. Now, I watched this man work for Air New Zealand. And over the 10 years I was in New Zealand, almost every two years he got a raise. He was a very good employee. And I saw him maintain his standard of living. He never upsized house, still drove the same old used car around, never bought clothes. Matter of fact, one time I had to tell him to buy clothes. You need to buy some clothes, man. I mean, you've worn those for a long time and they're starting to smell and I'm your friend and I'm telling you, you need to buy some new clothes. But his whole philosophy of life was, I have everything I need. I got a house, I got a car, I got food. I'm not wealthy. So everything I make from this day forward goes to my greatest passion, love, and priority, which is building the city of God and the city of man. You see, it's not forsaking doing these things. It's just putting them where they rightfully belong. I called him. That was 15 years ago. I called him this past week. He's still doing it because that's who he is. You say, well, I'd do that too if God gave me resources. No, you wouldn't. How do you know? Luke 16, 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. If you're not faithful now, you won't be faithful when you have more. Why would Mike live this way? And the answer is one word, isn't it? Eternity. He believes in the city of God. He lives for it. And as a result, now stay with me. This is what my coach is trying to tell me, and this is what I'm trying to tell you. As a result, his best efforts go here, not his only efforts. Still goes on vacation with his family. He's still smart in his purchases. He still works to eat and live. But his primary, what motivates him most, what drives him, the one thing to which everything else aims is the passion and the calling God has given him to bring up there, down here. And that's what Jesus said his believers would do. They would pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, just like it is in heaven. So can I ask you, how are you doing? You say, well, Jeff, don't I have a right to get my needs met? Okay, this is where the rubber hits the road in the West. When getting your needs met becomes more important than the work of God, your needs morph into desires that can never be satisfied. Listen to that again. When getting your needs met becomes more important than the work of God, your needs morph into desires that can never be satisfied. Do you understand what I mean by that? All those things you think are needs are luxuries to most of the world. You don't just want a place to live. You want a flash place to live. You don't just want mobility. You want mobility and style. You don't just want sustenance. You want delicacies and luxuries. You don't just want black coffee. You want lattes. (laughs) You say, well, wealth is relative. I say, yes, but it's never my relative. (laughs) And I said a few weeks ago that our garages are larger and more flash than a large portion of the homes in the world. See, in your mind, we live in the West. You got to be careful. Jesus warned it about rich man. He said, it's harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I don't have time to explain what he meant by that, but I think you get the gist of it. It's hard. Why is it hard? Because in your mind, you think things like movies and cable TV and lattes and eating out and high-speed internet and the latest fashions and exotic vacations and season tickets and the newest iPhone, iPad, or other gadgets. You think those are needs that you cannot live without. There's absolutely nothing immoral about any of the lists I just listed. 
However, when the work of God becomes paramount in your life, and it does for a Christ follower, you will gladly give up these things and more to accomplish a greater good. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, my followers will seek first the kingdom of God. The people of God will be so driven toward that one thing, man. They'll go for the bare minimum in other areas. Now look at what happens in Nehemiah 4, 21. The people continued to do the work with half of the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. I love this verse, 23. Neither I nor my brothers nor any men nor the guards with me took off their clothes. Let me stop there just for a second. Now, I heard uh, a Pentecostal preacher in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, give an interesting translation or interpretation of this passage. He said, the men of God were so focused on the work of God, they didn't even take showers. Well, it says here that they never took their clothes off. They sacrificed uh, bathing for the building of the city of God. And he said, good Lord, their stench was a sweet-smelling Savior in the nostrils of God. (laughs) Now, I don't think that's the point of that passage. I think the point is twofold. One, they always had their sword because they were serious about the battle, serious about it, wanting to get the job done. And two, I do think there's, it's, very, it's very difficult to translate, but there's something to do with the fact they went to get water less because every time they went to get water, it put their lives in jeopardy when they had to go to the well and it put the work in jeopardy. Because again, you can't build the city of God if you're dead. So when the building the city of God truly becomes your one thing. You will align everything in your life toward that end. You will work, you will eat, you will drink, you will recreate, but all these things are far less important. So as a Christ follower, you die to yourself and live for God. You still do other things, man. It's crazy to suggest we Christians just sit on the mountain and pray all the time. We live our lives, but the priority of life and living Jesus gave us the vision, go into all the world, teaching them everything I've commanded you. I'm going to be with you till the end of the age. The call of God on your life, the expectation is that at the very top of our triangle is building the city of God and the city of man, bringing it up there, down here, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now there's a second distraction, not only self-preservation, and there's only two, self-promotion. You're not going to believe, self-promotion's a second, you're not going to believe what happens in Nehemiah 5. The people are returning to Jerusalem to build the city of God, but they got nothing, man. They got nothing. They've been enslaved. They've been a controlled people. They're like the Jews of the Holocaust. Their land, their businesses, their opportunities have all been taken away. And they're still being taxed by the king on what they do have. And they're living basically hand to mouth. Now, as it is in every generation, the wealthy moneymakers still know how to make money when everybody else is losing money. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer. So their own brothers are lending them money in order to be able to live and charging them outrageous interest so they can never get out from under it. Nehemiah hears this and he says, what in heaven's name are you doing? We're all brothers here. You should be giving resources to them because we're building together the city of God. You're taking advantage of the misfortunes of others. Stop it. And man, he he, he must have been angry because they were scared. And they said, okay, we'll do it. And they did the right thing. 
But the other thing you notice in Nehemiah 5 is Nehemiah himself could have made a killing if he was not an honest man. All these resources the king gave him, the food, the rations, the home, the lodging, the timber, everything, he could have turned around and ridded that out to his own people to make a killing while they're building the city of God. Why didn't he? Because there was no doubt in Nehemiah's mind that everything he had in his possession had been given to him by God to build the city of God in the city of man. Can I ask you, is that you? You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. Nehemiah is amazing in this area. He gives up self-preservation, self-promotion to the point of reckless abandonment. In verse 17, he says, Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. Nehemiah said, I had all these things, but I gave it away for a purpose greater and bigger than myself. Guys, is that you? You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.